You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, People, people are the problem on airplanes, not service animals, people, people being assholes, people push and shove to board, including people who don't have luggage they need to stuff into the overhead compartments, which I've never understood. Why are you rushing onto the airplane if you don't need somewhere to put a bag? Who wants to maximize the amount of time they have to spend in the airplane? Also, assholes on airplanes, people who talk. On airplanes, the worst of all, people who talk to strangers who have their headphones in and their hoodies up, some of those strangers resembling me. Then there are those people who don't shut their windows, people who let their kids play bloop bloop games on tablets without using headphones or turning the sound off. And of course, there are those people who bring fake emotional support animals onto airplanes. They might be the biggest assholes in the air, and that is saying something because up in the air it is the asshole Olympics. These assholes are abusing a system put in place so that non-assholes who actually require service animals to function could bring their service animals onto airplanes. And now, after putting up with dogs and cats and pigs and lizards and monkeys biting people and pissing and shitting in aisles and tormenting those of us with allergies, the airlines are cracking down. It will no longer be enough, at least on Delta and United, which last week refused to let a person board with her emotional support peacock It won't be enough for people to produce a note from a doctor that says their pig or their peacock is an emotional support animal. They will have to produce paperwork showing that their service animal was actually trained to be a service animal. And it's not just a beloved pig in a service animal jacket that any asshole can purchase on Amazon for 15 bucks. Speaking of assholes, Genesia Ross, who's not an asshole, she is a 17-year-old student at Alexandria High School in Alexandria, Alabama. She asked her girlfriend to prom during a school talent show. She'd been told not to do it. She'd been planning to do it, and she was told not to do it right before the show, but the show's MC didn't get the update, didn't know the proposal was off, so the MC invited Genesia up onto the stage to make the proposal. Unsure of what to do, the Associated Press reported, Genesia went ahead with the proposal as planned. And the school, this is where we get to the assholes, the school suspended Genesia and the talent show's MC, another female student, for causing, quote-unquote, a disruption. Funnily enough, a male student at Alexandria High, a kid with the wonderful name Hunter Borders, was told not to propose to his girlfriend during a talent show at Alexandria High three years earlier. He did it anyway, and are you sitting down? Hunter wasn't suspended. And administrators didn't make an all-school announcement after Hunter asked his girlfriend not to prom, but to marry him, apologizing to anyone who might be offended, as they did after Genesia asked her girlfriend to prom. That statement that the school read over the school's PA also described Alexandria High School, a school named after a town that was named after Alexander the Great, one of history's biggest homos. They went on to describe Alexandria High as quote-unquote, a Christian school. Alexandria High is a public school. Before we go on, I want to note, positively, silver lining, Genesia and her girlfriend have the support of their families and many of their classmates who staged a walkout in protest, something I never thought I'd see in the rural South. But moving on, seldom is it asked, is our high school administrators learning? 
It would appear not, judging from the behavior of the administration at Alexandria High School in Alexandria, Alabama. Because if they'd been paying attention in 2010, if they had been learning, they would have heard about Constance McMillan, a lesbian kid growing up in a small town in Mississippi, a student at Itawamba County Agricultural High School. Constance wanted to take her girlfriend to prom And after trying to block her from attending prom with her girlfriend, the school canceled prom and blamed Constance. Because allowing Constance and her girlfriend to attend prom would cause, you guessed it, quote unquote, a disruption. The administrators at Alexandria High School are learning now what the administrators at Itawamba County Agricultural High School learned then. Discriminating against queer kids is going to cause a bigger disruption than not discriminating against them ever could. The Associated Press reports, it is unclear if the two girls will be allowed to attend the prom, but Alexandria High School principal Mac Holly said Alexandria's prom has had same-sex couples before. He went on to say that the school can't ban same-sex couples from attending because, quote, it's probably against the law. Spoiler, Principal Holly, it is against the law. And unless you want the disruption you cause to get incalculably worse, Principal Holly, you will not try to stop Genesia and her girlfriend from attending prom. And unless you want the ACLU suing your school, again, a school named after one of history's great homos, you won't describe your public school as a Christian school anymore, even if the majority of the students there are Christian And you won't fuck with the queer kids in your school the way you fucked with Genesia. Unless you want the world to come down on your head the same way the world came down on the heads of the administrators at Itawamba Agricultural High School in 2010. All right, coming up on today's Lovecast on the Magnum, erotic film director, screenwriter, and producer Erica Lust is here to talk about how robots have started making your porn and the disturbing new developments in robot produced porn. And a quick shout out to a listener, Matt with two T's, ran into a friend of yours. She wanted me to let you know that the next time she's in Tel Aviv, you guys will be having a cafe car together at Cosba. And now, your calls. Hi, Dan. I love your show and had a quick question about something I'm planning with my friends. I'm a college student living in a major city on the East Coast. And recently, we thought it might be fun to organize an orgy as a party. And I'm just wondering how to go about that. Um, We're a mix of friends, like some in monogamous relationships, some um, single. And we want this to be a fun, safe night, but not to have any kind of awkwardness or drama in the morning, if you know what I mean. So what kind of tips do you have? Do you think that's possible? Can we participate in this and still keep on being friends as we have been? Um, also, if you have any tips for good rules or ways to go about this so that it's as consensual and positive of an experience as possible, that would be great. There will be awkwardness. There is always awkwardness, particularly at a young college student's first orgy. I think you're headed straight toward awkwardness. You are in a car going 70, headed toward a brick wall of awkwardness. If you're inviting monogamous couples to your orgy, because orgy implies that everyone's going to be rolling around on top of everyone, you might want to call it a sex party or a play party instead, because people at a sex party get to have the kind of sex that they would like to have. And of course, people at an orgy should be having the kind of sex that they would like to have. But orgy might put into the heads of some people who are attending That everyone, by dint of being here, has consented to group groping, to swapping, to contact, to basically not monogamous behavior. 
It is possible for a monogamous couple to go to a sex party, to go to a play party, to go to a swingers event and soak in the erotic vibe and take in the action and observe and be voyeurs and be exhibitionists and still maintain their monogamous commitment. So the first thing I would encourage you to do to avoid avoidable awkwardness, easily avoidable awkwardness, is to rename your party. It is a play party. It is a sex party. It is not an orgy. As for awkwardness, there will be awkwardness. There will be awkward moments. You can't avoid awkwardness. And pretending that there isn't awkwardness or that awkwardness can be avoided or somehow factored out makes the awkward shit that goes down even more awkward. So you should acknowledge the presence of awkwardness. Awkward is a guest at your orgy. And you should make awkward feel welcome by acknowledging awkward and then addressing awkward. Everyone's going to need to use their words. It might be best if when everyone first gathers for the party to have a conversation that involves everyone where everyone introduces themselves. Everyone can say whether they're monogamous or not, what they might be interested in, whether they're to look or observe or participate. And that will help everyone involved avoid some degree of awkwardness. If somebody says, I'm here with my partner, we only have sex with each other, they won't have that awkward moment of somebody hitting on one or the other or both of them and them having to reject that person who's hitting on. Other good rules of thumb no cell phones, no checking messages, no emailing, no tweeting, no Instagramming during the orgy. Cell phones away. Even if someone is just looking at their email really quickly or responding to a text message, the person on the other side of the room doesn't know if they're taking a photograph or not. And if everyone doesn't know and trust each other at your orgy, that can be an issue. So have a cell phones off and away rule at your orgy. Might also be good to have a no drugs and alcohol rule, particularly at a young person's very first orgy. You don't want to set up a situation where people who may be nervous or have inhibitions drink to power through their nerves or inhibitions and wind up so drunk that they aren't capable of offering their legitimate consent in the moment. So a sober orgy is a good idea. So your first orgy, best practices, make it a sober orgy. Your 50th orgy, best practices, Make it a sober orgy. Circling back to my first point, that conversation, it's really important that people be able to talk about what they want, the sex they want to have, that people are capable of having that kind of conversation. You really have to be capable of having that conversation to be at an orgy. If you have people at your orgy who are too inhibited to talk about sex, to use their words, not just use their junk, that is a recipe for disaster. That is someone who may not be able to advocate for themselves in the moment. That may be someone who doesn't feel comfortable giving a person who's approaching them a direct and clear and unambiguous no thank you. And you should practice that. Everyone gathers in a circle. Let's practice no thank you. If somebody approaches you and asks you to do something and you don't want to do it, don't deflect, don't smile, don't put them off and let them think maybe later or ask again later. It's a no. And it's a no when it's a no and we're all down with hearing no. And have everyone agree in advance that everyone welcomes the no if it's a no and isn't going to pout or be passive aggressive about it or a jerk about getting a no. The no that you get, say this to your guests, the no that you get right away, that frees you to go find someone who's going to give you the yes and you can stop wasting your time waiting for or pining for or hoping for the person that you approached who gave you a, ah, I don't know right now, maybe if it's a no. And you can stop wasting your time hoping that the person who gave you an unclear and ambiguous answer might give you a clear yes later if it's actually a no and it's a no for the whole night. So getting that no isn't somebody doing 
something terrible to you. It's somebody doing you a favor. They freed you from following them around or waiting for them to come back to you so you can turn your attentions and focus onto somebody who would like to give you the yes that you were seeking in the first place. You just might get that yes from somebody else. Safe sex. Have a rule about safe sex. Sometimes people bend those rules when there are partners or throuples at a sex party who are fluid bonded and be clear what your rules around safe sex are. Does everyone have to use condoms? Are people who are in partnered relationships, are couples, are they free not to use condoms? Is it condoms for penetrative sex and oral sex, no condoms or latex barriers required? Clarity. Give people at your party clarity. You are the host or hosts. You make the rules. Anybody who pushes back against your rules at your sex party has disqualified themselves from attending your sex party. What they're telling you in advance when you lay out your rules and they start arguing with you is that they are highly likely in the moment to argue with someone who has told them no or no thank you or I'm not interested in that. How about this? Or I'm interested in that but we have to use a condom. You don't want people at your party who argue with your guests about their limits about their boundaries and a guest, a potential guest to your party who's arguing with you about those limits and boundaries, about your rules in advance, they have disqualified themselves. Have fun. Hey, Dan, long-time listener, first-time caller. Um, straight male, 34. I had my first male-female, male three-way with my wife, and it was like a super intense experience. It was nothing like I thought it was going to be. It wasn't porny. It wasn't like hardcore fucking. I don't know. We both talked about it afterwards and we felt like kids in a fucking candy store. And I feel liberated and just new and life feels new. And I feel different about myself, more confident as a man. And it's weird. And I would do anything to make my wife happy. And I'm not a cuckold. And I don't know what I am. And I don't know if I want to put a label on it. But if she wanted me to fucking lick his balls or suck his dick, I would. I wouldn't fucking care. I'm just that confident with who I am. Yeah. So is there a name for it? You are sexually adventurous. With a dash, a touch, a hint of heteroflexibility, depending on the context. A male-male three-way with your wife maybe a little same-sex contact in that context is something that you would enjoy. Obviously, it is perhaps something that you would enjoy. You anticipate, if it comes to that next time, enjoying it. That makes you a little heteroflexible and sexually adventurous. Cuckolding is your partner having sex with somebody else and there being an element of humiliation or degradation or denial. It's your partner cheating on you. It's controlled cheating. It is uh, eroticized cheating. It is jealousy eroticized that's not what you and your wife did. You, you had a three-way, period, the end. That's a sexual adventure that you had with your wife, and it was so successful, and you, a straight guy, in the moment came to the realization that touching another dude's body when you're having sex with your wife isn't something that you have to be terrified of. It isn't a flip you're going to switch, and it's going to turn you into a gay person. And really, that incidental contact between the two of you, the two men, in that male-male-female three-way, it's a little bi, it's a little heteroflexible, it ain't at all gay. And you can do that. You can go there and be exactly who you are. Some people might want to put the hot-wifing label on this, which is a scenario where a man shares his wife a little like property with another man, not like property at all in most cases, but sometimes a little like property the way people talk about hot wifing. It's his wife and he's sharing her with it. It's like lending somebody his car. 
But it doesn't sound like that's what this was. It sounds like this was a three-way. And you had a blast with your wife. And congratulations. And that feeling of confidence you described, that is familiar to everyone out there listening who's had a successful sexual adventure with someone that they loved, where they realized new things about themselves and they saw in themselves capacities for new forms of sexual pleasure going forward. Congratulations. Hi, Dan. Uh, this is a 20-something-year-old from Canada. I'm calling looking for some advice with my friend slash roommate. We have lived together for over two years and been friends for four, but I've noticed that her dating habits are, are really starting to, to hurt her. So she's a very sexual person and likes to have sex with guys. No problem there. I have no judgment. The problem develops when she starts to develop feelings with these guys, but continues to just keep the dates at drinking and, and fucking. She's told me about several guys that she would love to date and really likes. But when I give her the advice of why don't you plan a day date or a date where there's no drinking and no sex, um, just to gauge their, their genuine interest beyond the physical, she listens but doesn't do it. And I've seen her get hurt time and time again. I'm just wondering, is there any way I can communicate to her that the way she's dating is not getting her closer to what she ultimately wants, which is a relationship? She's expressed that to me many times. She's a heart of gold, but she has the libido of a 14-year-old boy, and it's just it's not lining up. I should also mention she has some self-worth issues. So she said to me on many occasions, she's afraid that these guys won't like her if she's sober slash doesn't put out. What can I do, if anything, to, to get through to her? It's really hard watching someone I care about a lot not get what they want. First, I want to say that there are people out there who don't want to be in relationships, who just want to fuck randos at regular intervals, who tell their friends, their concerned friends, that they really would like to be in a relationship, but the right person hasn't come along. And these people often will tell their friends that they really want to be in a relationship, but the right person hasn't come along because we're all supposed to want to be in a relationship. And people who don't want to be in a relationship, people prefer to have one and dones or one or two or three and see you later, dude, feel shamed and feel like they can't own that. And so there are a lot of people out there who will lie and will say, oh, yeah, just the right girl or guy hasn't come along. And, oh, I really ache inside. I really want that relationship because that's what they're supposed to want. And they are paying lip service to what everyone's supposed to want. They don't want their friends to think they're damaged and they don't want the things that everyone wants. And they're not good people because good people want relationships. Good people don't want a lot of sex, a lot of randos. When in actual fact, some good people do want a lot of sex with a lot of randos. Hopefully good sex with good randos. Doesn't sound like that's the case here with the other details you shared about how your friend feels about this, this pattern, this rut that she's in. And here's what I would say to your friend if she were my friend. You're worried these guys won't like you if you're sober or not putting out. You do realize that in a relationship, you cannot be drunk 24 hours a day and you cannot be fucking 24 hours a day. So if you go out with a guy sober at a time when fucking isn't possible because you have a commitment after or it's the middle of the day or you're just hanging out with some other friends to play a, a game of touch football or whatever in the park and they don't want to see you. They're not somebody you could have a relationship with until you've eliminated them from consideration. But the only way to determine if they would want to see you sober and not fucking is to see them sober and not fucking. You say she has low self-esteem, that she has self-esteem 
issues. And people with low self-esteem, and I would count myself among them, fear rejection. We were just talking about this a little earlier. We should rush toward rejection. Tell your friend not to fear that thing that she fears. She fears rejection, so she doesn't risk the sober, non-fuck date with these guys. And what she's learning, or should be learning, or should see, maybe if you point this pattern out to her, is she is guaranteeing herself rejection. She is orchestrating, engineering the rejection that she fears. All of, nothing is coming of these relationships because she isn't taking a risk. She isn't making herself vulnerable. She isn't expressing this desire with any of these guys to be more than the drunken hookup. And so she never is anything more than the drunken hookup. And no relationship is possible with any of these guys. So in a sense, she's rejecting herself on their behalf, not giving them a chance to reject her. She's going to rush in and reject herself. That was a pattern that I was in many, many years ago. And it's a pattern that you can snap the fuck out of once you realize that rejection is your friend. The sooner somebody rejects you because they're not interested in you, the sooner you will be climbing on top of, perhaps in that first drunken hookup, somebody who is interested in you and does want to see you sober and does want to see you with your clothes on and does want to spend time with you when they're not plowing you. You sound like a good friend. Continue to encourage her to break out of this pattern. Offer to be her wing person. Tell her the next time she has a rando drunken hookup with some guy that she is interested in seeing again and seeing if he might be interested in seeing her outside of random drunken hookup time that you'll get a guy or your boyfriend and you will go out with the two of them. Tell her to invite him along because you guys are going to the movies or you guys are going to dinner or you guys are having a game night playing cards and invite him over and you will be there too. offer a little moral support so it isn't quite as scary as a solo date. And I want to wish you and your friend good luck, but your friend already has good luck. There's evidence of good luck in her life and the fact that you are her friend in the first place. Hello, Dan. This is a gay guy. I'm calling from a West Coast city. I actually have a question about etiquette. Good friend of mine from the Midwest contacted me, said she met a hot, uh, interesting guy on a dating app somehow through the creepy magic of social webs uh she noticed that i was friends with this person on facebook which i am and quite like said sexy dude uh and she was like what's the story should i go on a date with this guy blah 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 and by all she the answer is yes she should and now the the reason i'm calling is i probably know something about this guy that she doesn't and that is simply that he is a trans man and I'm wondering if it is like, should I disclose that to her in my sort of vouching for this guy? Should I not? Uh, I have not yet. And I feel like that's probably what I'm going to do since it's none of my business. And, and honestly, I have no idea if she's into trans guys or not or whatever, but like, it simply just doesn't feel like any of my business. But before I permanently file in the, it in that pile, I'm also considering the possibility that she'll like call me back and be like hey uh why didn't you tell me this about uh said sexy dude all right so anyway wondering what your impressions or thoughts on that are disclose or nay so my initial reaction was you pulled a pin out of a grenade and handed it to me and wandered off and now i have to figure out what to do with this grenade this question it depends my advice to you really depends on what kind of trans guy are we talking about here we live in a brave new world where there are increasing numbers of trans men and women who identify not as men and women, which they have an absolute right to identify 
as, but as trans men and trans women. Uh, there's this term, stealth. Stealth is a term that is applied to trans people who live as their true gender and don't discuss, they aren't out about the fact that they transitioned so they could live as their true gender. And they live stealth. That was then. Now, however, there are more people who are trans-identified, even people who have, quote-unquote, they call it passing privilege. They could pass for male or female without being perceived to be trans or having transitioned at some point. If your friend who is trans is a trans-identified man, a trans man, and he puts that out there and it's a fact about him, and that's how he rolls it out. That's how he shares it with people. It's just a fact about him. That's his identity. He identifies as a trans man. Then you might be able to share this information with your friend as a fact about this guy that he puts out there in the world. It's his identity. It's how he identifies, how he moves through the world. That said, if that is how he identifies as a trans man, he's going to tell your friend in good time, perhaps on the first date, that he is a trans man. And so you don't need to say anything, but you could. If, however, he is not publicly identifying himself as a trans man, Outing him as a trans man is not something that you should do. Trans people are subjected to discrimination and violence. A lot of trans people don't live in places or don't work in places where they can safely be out as trans. And so they are not out as trans. And you could rain hell down upon this guy by telling people willy-nilly that he is a trans guy. You have to ask yourself, who is this friend that we're talking about? Is he a trans-identified guy? Well, then he'll probably tell your friend, and it's a fact about him that he puts out there in the world. That's why you know it. Does he identify as trans on Facebook and in other social media? Then you probably don't need to tell your friend, but you could. If he doesn't, you can't. You can't tell your friend. You can't out him for fear of the repercussions, the violence, the discrimination, the hatred that may be directed his way if this spreads when he is trying to be discreet about her, or this is information he only shares with people he trusts. And if you are one of those people and he trusts you and he shared this information with you, if you are not just his Facebook friend, but his friend, then maybe this is something you should discuss with him, the position you find yourself in. Maybe it's not this big gay mo with the advice show that you should have called this morning, but your trans man friend. Hi, Dan. I've got a problem in my marriage. Uh currently that I'm hoping you can help me with or provide some insight. Um, my husband is an active duty service member in the military, and he has recently picked up the habit of smoking cigarettes. Um, this is a huge problem for me because I grew up in a household with two parents who were chronic chain smokers and still are to the effect that the walls were completely yellow growing up and are now just brown as I'm an adult. His job is insanely stressful. As being in the military, he's in law enforcement. He works extremely long hours, has to deal with toxic leadership on a daily basis, um, and is just having a really hard time coping and managing the stress that he's incurring every day at the workplace. About a month ago, I caught him um, because I found cigarettes in his pants pocket. He knew that this was a huge issue for me and something that um, I wouldn't put up with. And he'd been hiding from it, hiding it from me for about a month by the time I found out. Um, we had a huge blow up, a huge conversation, and we had come to the agreement that he would quit. He would throw him away and it wouldn't be a problem. 
Um, about a week ago, I smelled it in his hair um, and confronted him about it, to which he revealed that he'd started smoking again um, for about a week. He said that the reason that he smokes is because it's the only thing he's found that helps him relieve stress while he's at work. It's the only way that they let him take five to ten minute breaks during his work shift. And it's the nicotine that he inhales helps his brain kind of release stress. I've encouraged him to consider other options for stress management, to which he's turned just about everything down. Um, I've encouraged him to seek out professional help through behavioral health resources. I've encouraged him to do breathing techniques or um, maybe try vaping. I would put up with that as long as I don't have to smell the secondhand smoke that I have vowed to not have to expose myself to as an adult. Um, I refuse to have it in my household, on my pillows, on my sheets, on my dogs. It's just not something that I can handle um, or I'm willing to put up with as a price of admission. It's just not going to work. Um, I'm hoping you may have some suggestions or um, resources that may be helpful. I'm kind of on my last leg, and I feel just increasingly paranoid every day, sniffing things to see if he's smoking again because I can't really trust him to tell me the truth. One of my earliest childhood memories is being in the backseat of my parents' Chevy Nova with the windows rolled up in Chicago in the winter when it was 20 degrees outside, and both of my parents in the front seat smoking. So I share your pain. I grew up in a household with smokers, and I hate the smell of cigarettes. For me, it is a deal breaker. I would not date a guy who smoked, and I would not continue to live with or be married to a guy who took up smoking after we got together. You described it as a deal breaker. Tell him again and again, it is a deal breaker. The choice you have here is this stress relief mechanism or this spouse. And however stressful your job is, divorce is pretty stressful too. And that's where we're headed. If you continue to smoke, I'm sorry to hear that your husband's in the military because It's not just go get a job with less stress or transfer to some other police department in another city or get into a new line of work if this line of work drives you to this self-destructive and marital bond-destructive habit. But that's really irrelevant because the choice here is cigarettes or you. However much stress that causes him on top of his work stress, that's the choice. Because it is for you as it is for me a deal breaker, a non-negotiable. Get him some Nicorette gum. Get him into a smoking cessation class. Tell him you will find him a hypnotist. Whatever it takes to save your marriage. But to save your marriage, he's got to stop fucking smoking. Period. The end. Hi, Dan. I'm a 31-year-old female. Been married to a wonderful man for 12 years. We've been pretty GGG for each other before I even knew there was a name for it. After hearing your show, I'm calling because I'm looking for advice or guidance in one specific aspect of our sex life, anal sex. My husband expressed his interest in anal sex pretty early on in our relationship. Um, I was willing to explore it with him, even though I had never had any interest before. It was definitely a challenge. Uh, We were careful and went slow, and he was very attentive and considerate, Uh, but it was difficult and painful. I continued doing it for him, though, and over the years, 
it's gotten easier. My relationship to anal sex has changed quite a bit. Now, I find the idea of anal sex quite appealing, and when I'm in the mood for it, I enjoy anal play and intercourse quite a bit. Uh, But here's the thing. As soon as I orgasm, which can happen pretty quickly, uh, I am absolutely done, and I loathe the sensation any time past that. I end up usually grinning and bearing it while he hurries up to try and finish And it seems very unfair to him and to me that this is happening. The fact that it happens every time has me kind of wanting to avoid anal sex, Uh, even though I do enjoy imagining it. uh, Are there any things that I can do that will help make this better for both of us? We're supposed to say that if you try something and you find it to be difficult and painful, you should stop trying that something. And yet your call is evidence that there are some things and sometimes if you keep at it, if you give it another try, if you grin and bear it a little bit for your partner's pleasure that you may find in time that this thing is pleasurable for you too. You may catch a groove and come to really value this sex act and the ways in which it does give you pleasure, but it took you a long time to get to that pleasure place. And so I never want to tell people to keep doing, keep doing, keep doing, keep doing something that doesn't work for them, something that is painful. But there are lots of examples out there when you talk to your friends, particularly about anal sex, when you talk to your friends, you talk to your gay friends, of people who at first it just it wasn't fun. It wasn't pleasurable for them. They were giving it up for the other person. And as you were, caller, grinning and bearing it. And then they turn a corner and then they catch a groove. And then this thing that at first wasn't that appealing or maybe was uncomfortable begins to work for them in a big way. And it sounds like anal now does that for you, works for you in a big way. Maybe works a little too well because as soon as you start in, you are climaxing. You have your orgasms. Very soon after the anal intercourse begins, and it is not uncommon for anal bottoms to want the top, that want that dick, out of them. The minute they come, it is over. The the anal pleasure, their experience of pleasure ends, and they want it out, 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 out. That is so common. And why is that? Well, when we have orgasms, our sphincters contract. And our ass that we had to consciously work on breathing and using a lot of lube and going slow, we had to work to open up and relax isn't relaxed or open anymore it slams shut and it can slam shut with a dick in it and that can be painful and usually at this point the lube that you applied so much of back earlier in that interaction at the beginning of that anal episode the lube that you applied so much of way 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 back when you started has been absorbed a little bit. Maybe it's spilled out. Maybe it's dried up and gotten tacky. It's not doing everything for you that lube should do. And people who have anal typically don't reapply lube, particularly as they're heading into the home stretch. You should. It's actually good practice. Have the lube handy. Put a little more in. Couldn't hurt. Could help. So what do you do? When you want it out, he should take it out. He should time it better so that he's close to coming. He can stroke, 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 stroke. Get himself close. Dive in. That's the standard advice, and I 100% support you if that's what you want to run with. There is also the power bottom varsity advice, which is you came, 
he hasn't finished, he can keep going after a couple of minutes. What you do is while you come, he stops thrusting. He doesn't keep going. He stays perfectly still while you breathe and you consciously make an effort to re-relax your anal sphincters after your orgasmic contractions are through after they're done. And you breathe and relax and you you consciously send message. You fire off those neurons from your brain to your butt that says, hey, relax again. We're done coming. Now we're just going to lay back and go loose and get loose again. Not everybody can do that. Not everybody can get there. I'm assuming that if you've been at this for 12 years, maybe you've already tried this approach. And if it didn't work and you tried it, you don't have to keep doing it. It's like you didn't have to keep having anal the first few times and you tried it and you found it difficult and painful. But you did. You kept trying it. You found the way to make that work for you. You found that it was intensely pleasurable for you, so intensely pleasurable for you, it pushes you over the edge right away, too soon, too quickly. You may find with a little effort the power bottom varsity technique of you get to relax and enjoy your orgasm with the dick inside you. They stop thrusting. He stops thrusting. The husband stops fucking you. Until he gets the go-ahead from you again, to start up again very slowly, to reapply lube again at that moment, which he doesn't have to withdraw all the way to do. Withdraw and drizzle lube onto the shaft and gently reintroduce it. But this is above and beyond. This is extra credit. You do not have to do this. But I am giving you this not as an order but as an alternate solution. Ideally, perhaps you should figure out what you need to think about to delay your orgasm. And he should compensate, make an accommodation, get himself closer before the anal aspect of the evening's events begin so it doesn't take him as long. But if you want to go for it, if you want to try, you could join the Power Bottom Varsity. You could get your varsity letter. Hi, I'm Mateen from the Northeast. And I just had a quick question about um, prep. Um, I'm currently not on it, but I was wondering if, you have sex with somebody who is on it, is there still a risk of HIV transmission if somehow they, I'm, I'm not sure, I'm, nobody's been able to give me a straight answer about this. If someone's on PrEP, they are HIV negative. And if they're taking their meds, they are at next to zero risk of getting infected themselves. The PrEP protects them from getting infected. Even if they're exposed to HIV, they are not going to get infected. So someone who is HIV negative and on PrEP and not infected by dint of being on PrEP can't infect you because they're HIV negative and they're on PrEP. PrEP ensures that they stay HIV negative. I hate to say this because I get in trouble for saying things like this, but sometimes people lie. People can lie about being on PrEP. People can lie about being HIV negative. So you always have to assess someone's self-interest and how well you know someone and how well you trust them when you're talking about putting your health in their hands or in their crotch. Someone may not want to use condoms and not be on prep and tell you they're not on prep because they want you to agree to consent to unprotected anal intercourse because that's what they prefer. People have been known to lie to people. All sorts of people lie to people. Women have lied to men about being on birth control when they're not. Men have lied to women about being single when they're married. People lie. And you can't just trust someone because he, like you, is gay. So you have to do your due diligence. You have to make sure you can trust this person before you trust this person with your health and with your safety. I would advise you to use condoms as well because 
HIV is not the only sexually transmitted infection that you need to worry about. If you're using condoms and you're using them correctly, your risk of acquiring or being exposed to HIV is very, very minimal. If you're using condoms coupled with PrEP, it's non-existent, your risk of acquiring HIV. And condoms will also protect you from gonorrhea, chlamydia, syphilis, not going to protect you from the skin-to-skin sexually transmitted infections like herpes or HPV, which are very common in most people's lives and experience. No big deal. But condoms will protect you from gonorrhea. There's a drug-resistant strain of gonorrhea that's bopping around the world right now. That's very scary. Use condoms. Protect yourself from that nightmare, and you will also be protecting yourself from HIV. And you should think about getting on PrEP because then you're not going to have to worry about HIV. You're not going to have to trust that the other person is on PrEP and HIV negative if you are on PrEP yourself and HIV negative. And so if a condom breaks or if you decide, you make a choice to not use a condom because you're on PrEP or they're on PrEP or they have a zero viral load because they're drug compliant getting treated even though they're HIV positive, they're non-infectious, you'll be safe. Hi, Dan. I am a 21-year-old, at this point, gender fluid uh, person who has never, ever in their entire life dated someone who identifies as male. I came out as gay before... I started figuring out what my sexual identity was and I've never dated any men since I've come out. And I know that I don't really know very many dating rules and very much dating etiquette, but there was a guy I contacted once on a dating app that I actually kind of wanted to get to know better. And I was really adventurous that day. So I offered to go get coffee with him And so we made like the friend request and everything. And then he just never said anything back. And it's coming to a point now where I still like him. I follow him on social media. I find him just to be very cool and interesting as a person. And there's a part of me that still wants something to happen. Now, some of my friends have suggested I reach out and try again. But I'm not quite so sure if that's a great idea especially since I barely know anything about what counts as good dating etiquette or good flirting etiquette. I don't even know what to do. Would it make me sound like someone who's just been so hung up on this person, so obsessively hung up on this person that they've just been waiting to contact them back? Or should that be something I'm looking forward to if I'm already trying to work some things out by myself? I don't know. A brief interaction on social media, an exchange of flirty direct messages, or a brief interaction through a dating app or through a hookup app is really the modern technological equivalent of briefly making eye contact with someone in a bar. We used to go to bars and you'd see a cute guy and you'd make eye contact and there'd be a kind of a connection. And then you'd circle back later and that person wouldn't be making eye contact with you anymore. Or you'd see him again another night and he wasn't making eye contact with you anymore. And you just had to read into that. Well, I guess he wasn't interested. I guess that was just brief interest and it passed and there's no longer mutual interest. And then you look around to see who else is desperately trying to make eye contact with you in that bar. That's how it used to work. People attach way too much importance to those brief exchanges they have on apps and through social media because there is this moment of really personal contact. There's there's this exchange of messages. You've established a connection. But really that a connection is as ephemeral and fleeting as that brief moment of eye contact in a bar 30 years ago when bars where where queer people or gay people met each other. So don't stress about it too much. 
maybe he was into you. Maybe he thought about it for a minute and then thought better of it, or he got serious about somebody else and it's not going to happen. That said, you can send him another message. Just remember I said, you know, that you made brief eye contact. Then you saw the guy in the bar again. A week later, you made eye contact again. And maybe then you talked. Maybe then you fucked. Or you made try to make eye contact again. And that person didn't look at you again. Didn't return. Didn't reciprocate the eye contact. Or give you a blank stare. Which said, yeah, no. Implicit in what I was unpacking for you is like you can try again. You can like I fuck that person again. And see if they're still interested in I fucking you back. And maybe actually fucking fucking you later. So send him another message. Don't sit there wringing your hands wondering about whether you should send another message. Send him another message. A second message after a proposed coffee date that the other person indicated interest in, that ain't stalking and that ain't desperation. That's just good follow through. So send him that second message and say, hey, still up for coffee if you are. Let me know. And if you don't hear from him again, yeah, don't send a third or a fourth or a fifth or a sixth message. Don't show up at their place of employment. Don't follow them down the street. Don't fucking stalk them. Then you know the answer is no. But that one message, that one brief exchange, maybe they were high, maybe they forgot, maybe that message, your message got washed away with 30 other messages that they that came in after and they just need to be reminded that you're there. They need to see you again in the bar to go get that coffee and then maybe get up on you. Yeah. Send that second message. Don't hesitate. Don't wring your hands. Don't overthink it too much, the second message. But then no response to the second message? Yeah, you go away without bitterness. You had a brief eye fuck in a bar. You made eye contact with a cute person who made eye contact with you. Take the ego boost of that forward with you instead of the rejection. Hey, somebody found me attractive. Other people are going to find me attractive. Didn't work out with that person. Who knows what was going on? Maybe they were from out of town. Maybe they have a boyfriend and they were just harmlessly flirting and couldn't follow through. But they were into me. And if they were into me, even though it couldn't happen, somebody else is going to be into me. All right. We're going to take a quick break from the calls to talk about what could be an alarming new development in the porn and AI front. Joining us by phone from Barcelona, Erica Lust. Erica is a Swedish erotic film director, screenwriter, producer, also blogger, author, public intellectual. Erica, thank you so much for jumping on the phone. Thank you so much for calling. So uh, a blog post, a recent blog post of yours caught my eye on your site, ericalust.com. Robots are making your porn and it's terrifying. Now we talk a lot about the coming of the sex bots around here. We've had people who are working in AI on to talk about our sex botted future, but this isn't about a sex bot that you have sex with. That's not the kind of robot you're talking about here. Exactly. What I'm talking about is kind of fake porn, putting fake faces onto porn stars' bodies. Or real faces of people who aren't in porn onto porn stars' bodies. Exactly. And this is is starting to happening, really. And the thing is that when it started to happen uh, a little time ago, it looked very clumsy. But now it's really starting to look as it were real. There are programs now out there, you write about one that, that you ran across, where someone can take a porn film and then take many, many moving images of an actor, actress, or politician's face and replace the porn star's face very realistically or, or nearly realistically. There's still the uncanny valley problem that you mentioned. But getting closer and closer to seamless or undetectable 
repurposing of someone's face, putting them in the porn or, or appearing to have put them in the porn. And I mean, this really what, what is happening is that we have to start to think about what what can be the consequences. And and because this obviously it could be some kind of revenge porn. And I mean, it's done many times to humiliate people. Mm-hmm. I guess it's a double edged sword if this technology becomes widely available and becomes perfected and the uncanny valley problem gets solved people who have their actual porn released you know a video that they made privately could say well that's not me they just used that technology that's that, that's fake that's not that's my face but that's not my body what? so it could create a plausible zone of deniability for some people whose actual dirty videos that they didn't want made publicly available are made publicly available but in the end, I mean, the main problem is still that sex is seen as something so shameful for so many, many people out there, right? Mm-hmm. That's one of the biggest problems, uh, that that we should start having better conversations about sex and maybe not be so embarrassed by it. Well, that's a point I often make when somebody's nude photos are, are, are leaked online. Uh, that the the consequences for the person who was victimized by that leak are, are are grounded in shame. And you hear people saying, well, if you didn't want those pictures out there, you shouldn't have taken those pictures. It's your fault for being in those pictures. And that that is all grounded in sex shame. And my point, I, I've often made the point that wouldn't it be nice if there was like one day a year where we all released a few dirty pictures? Because once everybody has their dirty pictures online, no one person can be singled out. Or, or attacked or lose their job or shamed for one dirty picture getting out into the wild. And eventually it does seem that we're headed in that direction where everybody's going to, everybody's going to leak. Everyone's going to have, you know, sex or dirty pictures that get out there. Somebody found, uh, and, and so, so, so what do we do here? You know, if we, if we fix the sex shame, if there's no shame or stigma attached to being in porn, there should be no shame or stigma attached to being in simulated pornography, except for it not being consensual, it, you know, being a violation or you being portrayed in a way you did not wish to be portrayed, even if you're hundred percent cool with porn or cool with the, your own porn that you made, you know, it's possible that somebody who's fine with being in porn might have fake AI porn created where they're doing things in that fake porn that they wouldn't do. And don't want to see portrayed or, or, or normalized. You know, if there's it sounds it sounds like a lovely idea in a lovely world, but then in the real world, kind of people will always try to use this. Uh, so, so that's that's the problem, and the problem is when it gets also into into private people's life. When suddenly they will use the image of a school teacher, and they will you know show that to all the school, and parents will start believing, and. It gets, it gets, it will get very complicated to to control this, and also because there's this kind of gray areas when it comes to the, all the legal aspects of it. Mm-hmm. In what sense? It seems like there's not much you can actually do because, as it is a fake construction and it's not real, you can't really complain about it because it's not your real image. 
that they have leaked, you know. Mm-hmm. So uh, from, from the articles that I'm reading, I'm finding out that the only ones that are actually going to be able to to complain a lawsuit or, or, you know, talk about it are celebrities somehow because they can say that they are using their images um, in, with kind of bad consequences. Or no, they're, using, they're, they're using their images for commercial gain. They're exploiting exactly. them. Commercial game. That's it. Whereas yes. if you're just an average person, there's no upside to just, you know, there's no commercially exactly. exploitable uh, advantage to just some average person appearing in porn. But if you're, you know, Brad Pitt or one of the examples you cite is Gal Gadot, that the, the porn. Gal Gadot, exactly. The star of Wonder Woman, that it was her face that you saw on some of this faked AI porn um, that, that made it appear as if she had. A, performed in a, in a pornographic video and she hasn't and I presumably she hasn't. Exactly. and she has she she she's not uh, conformable with it it's she was never asked to have her image used obviously in this image so it's something that was only made for the pleasure of the creator mm-hmm is this much different though than you know if you go on Tumblr if you go online you can find sites where people have used Photoshop not to create videos not moving images but a single image that can look very realistic where they've taken you know an actor actress's a celebrity's face and added it to a pornographic still image and those circulate widely without it seems much public comment or consequence how is this different well, uh, in the end, it's not really different. The biggest difference is that it's uh, a moving image, a video that is longer and that is many times getting you know more explicit, obviously, than just a picture. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and that being a video, because people are so used today that pictures are manipulated that you know you look at a fashion magazine and all of these images are manipulated so we kind of already know that but when it comes to video we still kind of expect that what we are seeing is the real deal that that person was really doing uh, that explicit sex video we had to learn that though about still images we had to learn that they could be manipulated very effectively uh, and and fool the eye. Will we then learn the same about a, a moving image once these technologies are perfected, where we will not trust them? We will look at a moving image and say, "Well, yeah, video Photoshop." Just in the same way, we look at some still images and say, "Well, yeah, that looks that's got to be Photoshop because they wouldn't do that. They wouldn't have appeared in that pose for that photograph." Will we someday look at a video and say, "Yeah, that's that's Gal Gadot or?" Gal Gadot, but she wouldn't have been in that video. So that's got to be the video Photoshop. But, but it's 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 crazy because it's it's not only with video and pictures. It's also happened with news. We all know that mm. uh, lately, how the fake news actually are manipulating opinions and how they are changing behaviors and ideas. So this kind of is a whole new world we are living in. And I I guess uh, bottom line is that we will really have to start talking openly about it and we will have to start educating younger generations in that 
they can't believe what they see uh, and uh, and and they will have to think you know around it is this image made to manipulate me somehow there's a political component to this too we've heard a lot about compromat uh because of donald fucking trump and whatever the russians have on him and they've obviously got something on him and we talk often about the p tape that they're in the Steele dossier, there was a reference to uh, an interaction in a hotel, perhaps, with a couple of sex workers that involved urinating on a bed or perhaps urinating on the person who's now the president of the United States. And the Russians would, of course, have this room that Donald Trump was staying in that Barack Obama stayed in wired for video and sound, and they may have this compromise. But in the future, the Russians wouldn't have to or somebody who wanted to create compromise wouldn't have to go to all that trouble if they can just fake a video of a politician in a compromising position. We will probably see a lot of those. And also, of course, not only when it comes to sex videos, obviously also speeches. Speeches? You can make, yeah, you can make a person say other things that they didn't really say in this kind of videos. Uh, that's going to be like we currently have a situation where politicians with a straight face, Republican politicians mostly, will deny having said what they said and they will – it's on video what they said. And in the future, they're just going to be able to say, oh, that video is fake. It's fake news in a world where anything can be faked. Anything we used to take for rock-solid evidence of whatever because there's the, the tape recording, the audio recording, the video recording. When all of those things can be faked so perfectly – that they're indistinguishable from actual audio, actual video, we're really going to live in a post-reality world. Such a black mirror world. What is going to happen? Erica Lust, Swedish erotic film director, screenwriter, producer. Read her blog, ericalust.com, or go to her website, ericalust.com, and check out her post, Robots Are Making Your Porn, and it is terrifying. Thank you so much for jumping on the phone today, Erica. really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Dan. And if you are or will be in Los Angeles on March 24th, you can see Erica Lust live at X Confessions featuring erotic short films, director Q&A, live performances, and more Saturday, March 24th at the Max Senate Studios in Los Angeles. For tickets to see Erica live, go to ericalustla.eventbrite.com. Hey, Dan. So say I got recently diagnosed with an STD like chlamydia. Um, to what extent do I have to clean my articles like underwear pants diva cups sex toys how do i make sure that i don't re-inoculate myself the treatment recommendations for chlamydia don't include washing your panties or scrubbing your diva cup but it couldn't hurt not a bad idea i'm on the wash your panties whether you have chlamydia or not side of the panty washing debate Chlamydia can be symptomless. Some people have no symptoms, just tenderness or soreness. But chlamydia can also, one symptom can be discharge. Icky, mucky, pussy, discharge. Vaginal, anal, penile. And if you have discharge, if there's gunk in your panties, chlamydia gunk, yeah, you're going to want to wash them. Chlamydia isn't spread by casual contact, which means that it doesn't live for long on surfaces. You need that genital-to-genital contact or mouth-to-genital contact or mouth-to-anus contact or junk-to-anus contact. You need that grinding together of bits and mucky bits and moist bits for chlamydia to transmit easily. 
So I don't think you have to worry that a pair of panties with a speck of chlamydia discharge on them that have been laying on the floor for three days are going to reinfect you should you put them back on. But let's all err on the side of if we have a diagnosed sexually transmitted infection that involves discharge. Discharge was one of our symptoms, a pussy, mucky discharge. Yeah, let's wash everything just to be on the safe side. Hey, Dan and the tech savvy at risk youth. Straight guy, 32, married from New York, and my wife is giving birth to our first child in a few weeks. So my wife and I have a question that we need to answer by the time the baby is born. Uh, What last name should we give our child? We're both progressive feminists, and my wife did not take my last name when we got married for a bunch of different reasons, and it never really bothered me. But my open-mindedness started to break down when early on in our relationship, I did insist that our future children take my last name. My wife's take was, it's kind of insane in our take that just because I've got a Y chromosome and she doesn't get to be a part of our own family, at least in terms of what our collective last name is. So after many, many conversations, I kind of agree. We got a lot of options. The kid could have my name or her name or both our names or a combination of the two or a totally new name altogether. We're both into the idea of hyphenating, but our names don't sound great together. And to be honest, it feels like kind of a cop out. Is hyphenating just kicking the can down the road for when our child inevitably falls in love with another person uh, with a hyphenated name themselves decades from now? Oh, and this whole thing is complicated by the fact that neither of us want to change our own names. And yet, we don't want to be a family with three different last names. We do want to send a message to our child and to the world that our family is one where quality matters and where the default is that mommy and daddy both have an equal voice and an equal identity. So... What would you do if you were us, Dan? I'm a parent, and there's nothing my kid likes more than when he comes up on Dad's Filthy Sex Advice podcast, so we will be brief. We gave him his mom's last name, so we are a family, my husband and I and our son. We are a family with three different last names, and it hasn't really been a problem. We don't feel any less a family for it. That I have one last name, Savage. Terry has another last name, Miller, and our son has his mother's name his birth mom's name his only mom's name as his last name and it's worked out fine so you could give your kid his mother's birth name like we had oh that would be your wife's name you could give him your wife's name you also have the option of your last name as the middle name and wife's last name as the kid's last name or your name as the kid's last name and wife's last name as the kid's middle name you have lots of options and this seems to be something that you guys could easily and quickly come to agreement on. And I move in a lot of politically progressive, lefty, feminist circles, and people don't really assess other people's political correctness or feminist cred based on the last names of their kids. That's not something that I've ever seen come up at a dinner party conversation where everyone's tossing their lefty feminist cred bona fides out on the table. We named our kid blank. Never comes up. You don't have to worry about you or your wife or your feminist cred, or the whole family's feminist cred being assessed with this particular metric. You're going to have a lot to worry about once your parents, this isn't something you should spend five more minutes worrying about. Pick a last name, pick a formula, stick to it. Hello, Dan and the tech savvy at risk youth. I have been talking with my girlfriend concerning what was going on with the Olympic trainer who was violating those young uh, gymnasts. Uh, my contention is that he was asserting his power by 
making the gymnast feel pleasure by uh, inserting his fingers into their vaginas, thinking that he was going to get them off. And my wife says that's impossible because girls don't get off by having fingers in their vaginas. They only get off by having clitoral stimulation. I know that uh, most people don't climax with uh, just vaginal penetration, but it's got to feel good, right? I mean, what the fuck? Otherwise, why, uh, why is finger fucking a thing? USA Gymnastics team doctor Larry Nasser wasn't asserting his power over these young women and girls, some as young as 8, 9, 10, 11 years old, by giving them sexual pleasure, by attempting to give them sexual pleasure. He was raping them with his fingers. He was only attempting to pleasure himself the comfort, safety, physical safety, emotional security of these young women, of his victims, is entirely immaterial to this serial rapist, to this monster. We can get into a debate about the pleasures of finger fucking and the central role the clitoris plays in a woman's sexual pleasure, but having your genitals mauled manhandled, violated by someone abusing his position of power and authority and trust as a doctor over you is not going to pleasure anyone. And it was not ever about pleasuring the victims. It, it wasn't about him deriving some sense of sexual mastery because he was providing these young women with pleasurable sensations or experience. No, no, not that at all. He was violating them. And that should be clear. If you've been paying attention to the news, the testimony of the 150 plus young women who spoke at his sentencing hearing about their experiences, these young women were traumatized by these experiences, not pleasured. You have an orifice. I assume you're sitting on it right now listening to me speak, sir. If I abused my position of trust and authority as a sex advice columnist and jammed my fist up your ass, even if having a fist in your ass is something you enjoyed in other circumstances, maybe when your girlfriend fisted you, me just pouncing on you and fist fucking you would probably not provide you with much pleasure despite the presence of your prostate. Up in there getting fucking butt punched by me. And you both, you and your girlfriend, both need to get a little anatomy lesson about the clitoris. The clitoris isn't just the glands. It's not just the exposed bit. There is a lot of clitoral tissue, clitoral wings, clitoral roots that anchor the clitoris. It's really a whole system. It's as large and complex, actually larger and more complex than the penis. And not all women need direct or can tolerate direct clitoral stimulation, but all Women's orgasms engage and involve the clitoris, the clitoral tissues, the whole of it, not just the glands of it. Some women can come from vaginal penetration alone, fingers or toys or the almighty penis because it's engaging their clitoris. It's engaging all of it, the root. It's providing them with the clitoral stimulation they need without it being focused on the exposed glands of the penis. Other women, most women, 75% of women require that on the glands. But this is irrelevant to the conversation about this monster in Michigan who raped 150 girls 
not because he believed irrationally that he was providing them with pleasure. There's nothing that he was doing to or for these girls that was about their pleasure or their safety or their security or their clitorises or anything. And for you and your girlfriend to both go there is really kind of demented and I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt and assume you were only half paying attention or you only read a headline or two about what went down in Michigan for the last 20 years for you, either of you, to frame it in quite the way that you did. For you guys to have the argument that you're having about it. Go Google that shit. Not a coach. Team doctor. Larry Nasser, Sentenced to 40 to 175 years for sex crimes. Raping all of these girls. For his pleasure, not theirs. Hey, Dan, this is Rick. I'm a uh, 50-some gay male in Seattle Pacific Northwest area, and I never thought I'd have a question for you, but I do. I've been struggling in the past couple of years with the loss of uh, a good friend. Uh, we've been good friends and just friends for many, many years. He uh, was in the closet for many years after I was, and then finally came out to his wife, negotiated with his wife to leave her and then met and married a really wonderful gentleman and I went in there you know went to their wedding gave a toast and everything else um but we were intimate friends not intimate sexually but intimate in terms of intellectually emotionally um, connected over many different types of of items you know I totally get that he's got his new husband and that person's going to be the intimate partner in his life in terms of day-to-day things, things like that. Uh, but I, my friendship has just been kind of put on hold, and I no longer feel like the the number one, not even the number one person in his life, but I no longer feel like the best friend in his life, and he was my best friend. And I've just been grieving over the loss of that for the past couple of years. They've been together for four years now, and after two years they got engaged, and after three years they got married, and they've been married for over a year now, and I'm happy for him. And his partner is a wonderful guy, a spectacular guy, and good for him and everything else. But now my time with him is cut down from about once or twice a month down to once or twice a quarter, and I don't get returned phone calls anymore, and I'm just not the intimate person in his life. And again, intimate being described as the person who he shared a lot of things with. And... uh you know, he's the type of person who had kids, and even though he had kids, still made time for me. And I'm I'm grieving over the loss, and I'm trying to figure out what to do with it, how to compartmentalize it, or how to either put something out to him, telling him I'm not happy with the way things are between us, or or to just end it. If he's not returning your calls, then it's really not an option for you to end it. Sounds like he's ending it, or has ended it. Still, you are seeing him, you say, once or twice a quarter, which in the first year of a newly married person's life isn't nothing. He's still seeing you pretty regularly. Of course, not as often as he used to see you back when he was closeted and you were the only person on earth who knew that he was gay, who he could really be himself with a hundred percent. He probably leaned on you a lot during that stage of his life and during that stage of your friendship. Because you were the only person. You were his lifeline. You were also, because you were out already, you were an example to him of what was possible. So he made a lot of time for you because he needed you in a way then that he doesn't need you quite as acutely now. And that hurts. 
And what do you do with that? Well, you say to him, you write him a letter and say, I miss our friendship. I know we can never spend as much time together as we once did, you know, back when you were closeted and I was your one gay friend or when you were single and then you were dating and you had a lot more time and bandwidth that was available to me. And I really valued that time and I still value it. I know I'll never get as much time with you, but I'd still like some quality time with my friend and I miss you. And then see what he says, see what he does. It may take another year or two before he circles back. Sometimes people who are finally married to someone that they actually are capable of experiencing romantic love with, it takes them time to learn that a spouse isn't a best friend and a best friend isn't a spouse, that these are different roles and you need different people playing these roles in your life. And he'll learn that lesson in time. Two people can't be all things to each other. We're told that in marriage, two people are supposed to be all things to each other, lover, companion, best friend. And that just puts too much strain on a relationship. That's expecting too much from one person. It's an unrealistic set of expectations to impose on a spouse. It undermines a marriage to expect so much from that one person. And he'll learn that lesson in time. And so long as you didn't get bitter during this stage when he had to go off and learn that lesson, when really all of his emotional bandwidth was being occupied by his new family, his new spouse, his new husband, as long as you don't get bitter and resentful and hold it against him when he circles back to you, your friendship will probably resume and blossom again if you don't get bitter. But to prevent yourself from getting bitter, you have to understand why you were so important to him then when he was closeted, why you probably got more time with him then than you would have if he hadn't been closeted, and why you're getting so little time with him now. I know it's four years into this relationship, but it's only one year into the marriage. And putting a ring on it and putting that label on it, calling it a marriage instead of a relationship or a boyfriend or an LTR, that puts a zap on a lot of people's heads. They think they have to change the way they relate to their, their partners that they've married, to their friends, to the world because they're married now and marriage means different things. And people in time unlearn that bullshit. Marriage is wonderful. I'm married. I'm glad I'm married. Marriage ain't everything. My husband is wonderful. He ain't everything. Your friend will learn in time that his husband can be wonderful, but he can't be everything to him. And his need for other connections, other friendships, it'll pick back up. And he'll pick you back up. And you'll be able to be picked back up so long as you didn't get better. Look around. Look around in your own life right now. While he's focused on his husband, I'm sure there are other friendships that have fallen by the wayside. Maybe friendships that got crowded out when you were so available to him, when he was closeted and getting divorced and working through all of that. He probably was making great demands on your time and you probably let other relationships and other friendships go or fall by the wayside. Call some of those people back up. Reconnect with them. There are probably people in your own life who feel about you the way right now you feel about him, who miss you who feel like you discarded them. Reconnect with some of them in the meantime. Hi, this is a comment for the caller in episode 588 who is talking to her Catholic cousin about masturbation. I, similarly, am an active Catholic coming from a very Catholic family. I'm also a liberal and a feminist and a lesbian. I know that when I come out to my extended family and they ask how I can be Christian and a lesbian, I plan on asking them, if God is love, why would God have a problem with love? It doesn't make sense for love to have a problem with love. So... 
specific to your question, you can tell your cousin it doesn't make sense for a loving God to forbid you from doing something that is good for you. Hello, comment for the caller in episode 588 who said she was in love with her brother-in-law. Oh, I'm sorry about your situation, but stop using the word love even in your own mind. You have a crush on him. You have a crush on him. Um, Twice in my 18-year marriage, I've had significant crushes on men other than my husband, who um, and men, men I worked with very closely, my husband out of town, spending a lot more time with these people. What I did was focus on what it was I liked about them in both cases. In, in one case, it was how much he spoke well of his wife. So him having an affair was not even a possibility. If he would have an affair, he wouldn't be the man I had a crush on. I think that might be the same with your brother-in-law. And then also, I would look for things about them that bugged me, things that made them human, uh, whether it's something physical, something emotional, maybe he's indecisive, maybe he has slopey shoulders. There's something in there that is human and imperfect. Focus on that. He's not magic. He's not the one. He's a human mortal with flaws that you have a crush on, nothing more. Hi, this is uh, the woman in show 588 who... uh not able to come from calling. My wife had the opposite issue. She couldn't come from penetrative sex, couldn't come from being rubbed or cunnilingus, only could come with a vibrator. And for a long time, we struggled with that, as it sounds like you struggle. Um, and I felt inadequate, and she felt inadequate, until finally we just figured out that that's how her clit is wired, and she needs a vibrator right on the clit to come. And since we just accepted that's how she works, it's been great. Lots of orgasms for her. Our sex has been fine. And I just want to encourage you that uh, that's just how you're wired and there's nothing wrong with that. And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you'd like to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-302-2064. If you like my ranting at the top of the show, you will love me on Blabbermouth, the Strangers Weekly News and Politics podcast hosted by Pulitzer Prize winning journalist Eli Sanders, me and Eli and snot-nosed millennial Rich Smith. We debate everything going on everywhere. Every Wednesday on Blabbermouth, you can get it wherever you get your other podcasts. And people who love podcasts love swag. We have Savage Lovecast swag. In addition to all my ITMFA swag, I'm constantly pumping. I rarely remember to pump Savage Lovecast t-shirts and coffee mugs for sale at www.savagelovecast.com. Along with all my books, wear me, read me, drink me, click shop at the top of the homepage. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Erica Lust on Twitter at Erica Lust, and that is Erica with a K. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech-savvy at-risk youth and Nancy. We'll all be back at you next week with another installment of Savage Lovecast. Thank you.